Welcome to Chinuch Today with Rabbi Yerachmiel Garfield, where we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. This is Yerachmiel Garfield, and today we are going to discuss the critical, the critical issue of Kriya, Hebrew reading. So far on the podcast, we have explored some really fascinating and important areas of a school's program. We talked about social-emotional learning, which is about the child's development as a person, their emotional progression and maturity, and being able to deal with life's difficulties. We've also talked about hashkafa and the importance of imbuing children with a love of Torah and a love of Hashem and a connection to our heritage. One cannot think of a school without these elements, a Jewish school, for sure, which is focused so much on solidifying a child's connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the future. But there are actually some academic areas that play that critical role as well. One could argue about some of the finer aspects of a curriculum, how important they are, you know, what what level of idios or how deep to go into Nevi'im. You know, these are legitimate areas that could be discussed and argued about. Do you go faster? Do you go deeper? Do you go slower? Um, do you make sure the children end elementary school or high school with a certain amount of bikiyas in knowledge, a certain amount of broad knowledge of Torah? Another area that that could be debated is uh, Ivrit and how critical spoken Ivrit is to a child's future as a Jew and future Tamil All of this is legitimately discussed. But there is one academic skill that no one could argue about is a critical component of becoming a successful Jew. Not to say that we could judge fully on what a successful Jew is. We certainly recognize that being a successful Jew comes in many shapes and flavors. Uh, and who are we to ultimately judge? We'll leave that to But as much as a school could know, and as much as a human being could perceive about what an educational system needs to produce to create a successful adult, I don't think anyone could argue that Kriya, the ability to simply read Hebrew clearly and comfortably, is one of those critical, critical skills. I remember Rav Yaakov Weinberg, Zechert Tzadik Levracha, who is the Rosh Hashiva of Neri Yisrael in Baltimore, and known throughout the Chinuch world as one of the thought leaders, one of the critical thinkers who really uh, wasn't scared to talk his mind, so to speak, at a Torah Mazar convention. Unfortunately, I came to Tarmasara after his patira, after he died, so I didn't personally get to hear him in those venues, but there are tapes available. And I remember I was listening to a tape of him at a question-answer session, and he said that the most important job that a school does is teaching Kriya, which I thought was very interesting, you know, that that becomes such a critical piece. But the truth is that Kriya, Hebrew reading, is the key to all of Jewish tradition, right? All of Torah, all of learning Torah and davening and just so much of what we do is connected to Kriya. That's more on a macro level. On a micro level, simply getting through school, the amount of Kriya, Hebrew reading needs for a child in, in first, second grade between there and 12th grade or base medrash or seminary, it's going to be very heavy. And if we don't make sure that children are reading by the end of third grade and really the end of second grade, but let's say solidified, they're reading fully by the end of third grade, um, that child will be set up for failure. And um, we could sometimes steal statistics from the secular world. I'm not sure how transferable this is, but it does just highlight the importance of Kriya. The research on 
on the secular world in terms of people in prison and people in success rates, etc., the connection between finishing third grade with a solid foundation and success later in life is very significant. And I would suspect that the same reality exists for us, that if we cannot get our children reading well by the age of third grade, we have failed. Now, the scary statistic you are going to hear um, from our guest is that we are not doing a great job. He uh, has a program, Madik, which we're going to hear about, which uh, collects data from thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish children in our schools. And I can't even repeat the statistic because it's too painful, but there is a large, large number of students who are not mastering Kriya. So the reason today's presentation is so important is because I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Scott Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg and I have interacted quite a lot over the years. We were able to host a Torah Masora fire chat. I hosted one and he was the guest a number of years back at a Torah Masora convention. And he is involved in many aspects of Chinuch. There's a lot of beauty to who he is as a professional and that he merges the world of scholarship and university with real practice. But with regard to Kriya, I think he shines remarkably because he had an opportunity through his undergraduate and graduate work to interact with the greatest minds in reading alive today, simply stated. The greatest minds, the developers of the Dibbles, which is a very well-known reading tool, and he partnered with them. It's like, you can't get better. He partnered with the greatest Kriya professionals, in, or reading professionals, I'm sorry, in, in America, and developed a Hebrew reading application of their philosophy and their theory. And that's what we're going to learn about today, how he did, how he connected to them, how he used their model and developed it, and how available his program is to our schools and to make sure that our schools are doing everything we can to arm our children with this absolutely critical existential skill that they must, must master. And it is our great, great duty to do so. So I am so thrilled to introduce you to this remarkable educational leader, Dr. Scott Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay, so we're going to get into your program, but let's just tell us, like, where, what do you do? Where do you live? Where do you live? What state? And what do you do every day? I live in Passaic, New Jersey with my family. We've, uh, my wife and I have been here for 25 years, really as part of the larger community growth. I think when we moved in, there were 750 families or so in a square half a mile, perhaps. Now it's, I think, a square mile, mile and a half with uh, 3,500 families or so. Wow. Uh, and uh, we've had the real pleasure of raising our family here. And what do you do every day? So I have really a number of roles. The most important thing I do every day is uh, get to engage with leaders of schools like like you, leaders on the professional side, leaders on the lay side, really trying to advance uh, Jewish education, uh, advance the lives of children. Um, that comes in a number of forms, though. Uh, I have the real pleasure of being the Golda Kashitsky Chair in Jewish Education at the Osri Ely Graduate School at YU at Yeshiva University. Uh, a chair that was filled by my, uh, my late colleague, uh, Rabbi Dr. Chaim Feuermann, Zeher Lebracha, who filled that really in remarkable ways for many, many years. Uh, we shared an office together and we, we learned so much together and uh, he taught me so much. Um, so I, I do that where I teach classes. Uh, I mentor students, uh, advance both teachers and leaders of schools in that work and also do research. And I also have the pleasure of leading a consulting 
uh, company, a very creative name, Scott Goldberg Consulting. Uh, and, uh, and we do a number of areas uh, of work in, in Jewish education, uh, leadership development, uh, strategy work, uh, searches for heads of school and principals. And I think the topic for today really focused on um, educational excellence, areas of work to improve teaching and learning in the classroom and how it is that children learn. Awesome. And uh, at Azrieli, do you have a subspecialty? Is the faculty broken up like people who are experts in A, Y, and Z? And if so, what is your focus there? So I think at one point I counted how many classes over the 21 years that I've been there and uh, dozens of classes, so in different topics. My areas of expertise really uh, focus on, on student support. I have a master's in special education focused on learning disability education and a PhD in applied psychology looking at systems, uh, so systems of support for children and the like in school systems. So I've taught classes over the years in psychology and developmental psychology, in educational psychology, so kind of the underlying science of learning. I've taught courses in leadership development. I've taught courses for school leaders in governance and finance, budgeting, things like this, overall leadership. I teach the research courses for doctoral students and for master's students. I teach a lot of classes now in differentiated instruction and in required course for our students in teaching Hebrew literacy. No, Yofi, Hebrew literacy is a mochachov. Yeah, you know what I love about about you and what you're doing is, fortunately, sometimes the hollow halls of university are somewhat in their ivory tower and not really connected to practice in a meaningful way, but it sounds like your career has really served as a bridge between the world of the university and the philosophy and the ideas behind education, but very much in a real practical way and making sure that those concepts are impacting children in a real tangible way. So I appreciate it. I certainly hope so. Um, I do spend an awful lot of time in schools and with school leaders and teachers. And, and that really informs what we do at the university. Uh, it really is a symbiotic relationship, the research and practice continuum. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, it, it, so much that it, it impacts, let's say, a parking permit on campus. Because when am I going to be on campus? Am I going to be on campus at this specific time when I teach? Or am I going to be, well, when I'm on campus because I'm not in a school? And therefore, it could be on a given Tuesday or it could be on a Thursday, on a Monday. I teach classes at night. Should I have a daytime pass? Should I have a nighttime pass? And they couldn't figure out which pass to give me. So they just gave me a 24-hour pass. And nice. Said, go ahead. You can come when you want, go, park when you want. And you could sublease your pass out on uh, some app, you know, borrow my pass. It can make you a lot of money there. I'm sure there's some <laughs> colo guy in late. Someone's developing that. Putting together that, yes. I love it. Okay, well, now that we know that you're up to good things, let's let's talk about how you got there. So, the kids are, where did you grow up? And how did you, when did you know you wanted to go to Chinuch? Who are some of the influences? You know, we're talking prior to 20 years old, so to speak. You know, when did you know and how did you develop your interest in that? So um, I was the most influential person in my life that, uh, that really got me where I am is my father. My father was in uh, public education for 35 years. Wow. Where? I remember the first time he had a conversation with me about education. I was four years old. I was sitting on his lap. Um, and he was teaching me the difference between teaching and learning. And he said, you know, just because something is, you, you teach something doesn't mean that a child learned it. And just because you learned it doesn't mean that you learned it from the teacher. And I was, I was very young and I remember it. And then there were many, many lessons in between that and 
obviously adulthood and where we are today, still very much uh, speak to him about specifics and, and get his guidance and have the pleasure of really having him be a, a mentor for me. I kind of always wanted to go into education. Uh, my father actually discouraged me uh, uh, from going into education uh, and uh, seriously discouraged me to the point where I was, you know, thinking about being an astronaut. I thought I was going to be, uh, I was going to be a lawyer and went to college pre. I think that's a rite of passage for all children. You have to think you're going to be an astronaut, a fireman, and uh, you know, a lawyer. If you're a yid, we could do the lawyer, but yeah, for sure. Um, but, uh, for me, I guess it was, you know, still, you know. I, have an aspiration to get to space someday. Uh, but anyway, the, the the lawyer thing didn't really, wasn't really serious, but it was kind of a default and, and, and went to college and really fell in love with tutoring and having opportunities to to teach others. I volunteered to be a basketball coach in an inner city, southern, you know, south side of Chicago middle school um, and, uh, and and had real opportunity to engage children. It was really my passion. And Jewish kids too. Uh, I, I, one of the most influential experiences I had that actually pushed me in the direction of Hebrew reading and uh, learning disability education uh, was an experience uh, where I, I met somebody who was a gas station attendant who I happened to bump into on the way of getting gas somewhere and they had synthesis on and it flew out under their shirt. And I was like, this didn't make sense to me. You know, like what good, you know, why aren't you a doctor or a lawyer, right? That's what every, you know, because every Jewish mother and father want their kid to become a gas station attendant. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there, there's just, uh, just didn't, it didn't, it didn't make sense. It was dissonance. So I started asking questions. It turns out the person had struggles reading growing up and was sent uh, out of yeshiva to public schools. And one thing led to the next, and I, I was offering to uh, to learn with the individual who's in his early twenties. Um, and with six within six months, he had so many ideas and and had learned so much just by listening to his parents growing up to Divrei Torah and to uh, to Hashkafa, and, and and really had a, a worldview that was really remarkable. And, and he was reading within a short period of time uh, uh, based on some of the ideas that I had shared with him at the time, and that really drove me forward to want to go into education. I remember the conversation I had with my father when I was already in Eretz Yisrael after college, learning in yeshiva, where I called him from 5,000 miles away, told him that I was planning on going into education, and he embraced it. And uh, oh. the rest is history, if you will. Are you in touch with that guy today, the, the guest? Uh, I, I do not have uh, contact with uh, oh, that you got to find out. He's, he's a CEO of Pepsi or something. I am sure that he is supporting many mostos around the world, <laughs> as many kids who struggled through school do. Yeah. How are you as a student? I was fine. My parents very much encouraged you know, a lot of a lot of effort in school. And uh, thank God the Rabboni Sholem gave me co-hosts as well. And so it worked out. So that's even nicer that you're you're committed to helping and one other thing is, how old were you when you met that gas station attendant? I'm curious. Do you remember? I must have been 18 or 19. Years really? Old. Wow. So you really had a passion for this and a calling for it early on. I saw the, the impact that my parents had. My mother was also in, involved in education. My grandmother was involved in education. Oh, wow. And I, I, I saw the impact that my parents had. And I saw, I saw what could happen when you built a relationship and not just look to transfer knowledge. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's what it's been about from the moment I started, you know, being involved in tutoring or being involved in discussions. Beautiful. You know, sometimes when I'm interviewing a potential teacher, especially someone who grew up in the firm community, I always mine the conversation 
for when they were younger, did they naturally find their way to education, either through Pirche or counselor? Because, you know, someone who's a teacher at heart, usually, not always, but there are opportunities to express that when they're very young. And you could sort of sometimes mine that out of a conversation. And that's a very good indicator that the person really is in the right place and the right career. And then there are those who have it latent and yeah. aren't necessarily involved in and even maybe we're discouraged from it because of uh, you know bad experiences that people around them had uh, yeah. in the field. Absolutely, and that's unfortunate today that you know those who are sometimes the the, the rebbeim and moros, the menal and menalos in Jewish education today uh, don't sometimes pass along the excitement and the passion because too often the community doesn't exalt the educators the way in which in perhaps past generations we did. Too often we we look to it as a as something other than a uh, an exalted profession, and I think we need to provide. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I know that. I think uh, there's a there's there's a Torah now has the Chinuch Shabbos, right, uh, coming up uh, in uh, in a community that we know well very soon, and uh, and and I think that those promote Jewish education um, really, you know, perhaps you know light light something inside a young child to say I aspire to be like that. Uh, we know that role models play such a critical role in decision making around profession and and, and around you know future um, experiences in life. And uh, I think you know the more Rebbeim and Moro should have front seats in every shul, and uh, and uh, we should be giving them without question. They shouldn't have to apply for scholarships in schools. They should be given them. Anyone in Klaykovich just be yeah. given opportunities to continue to advance their families. And it shouldn't be Nebuch. They can't do this, but the donors can. The, the donors uh, and those living in communities who have the capabilities of living enviable lives uh, should view the life of a Rebbe and a Mora as, as enviable from what they're doing to, to give to Klai Yisrael and support them with some Gashmias too. Um, so that there's not the, the Nebuch kid who can't go to whatever event that they'd like to go to and their father or mother can't bring them if they're a Machanech, but that they're there just like uh, everyone else. And uh, I think we need, to, we need to create the space for that. A hundred percent. And uh, I'd like to add, not that you would disagree with this, but I think general studies teachers who are coming from our community also get a special place because we see more and more how critical it is to have high quality general studies and the challenge in our community of finding those outside of the community. So from individuals who commit themselves to general studies, I think also need to be celebrated. And the Shabbos of Chinuch that you referenced in Houston is very much focused on that very point. And we've included anyone involved in any aspect of it because we need everyone, all hands on deck. It's all, it's all Chinuch. Yes. Um, it's, it's all Chinuch. And I think that that, uh, you know, when we look at great companies, Right. They, they say the story, uh, I think, in, in, about NASA. I'm probably going to tell it wrong and a million people will comment that I'm telling it exactly right. But this the, yeah, we the, have about a million listeners. So that's, yeah, no, that's it's fine. Out. I understand. Uh, it's fine. Um, the, uh, the, the, the story of NASA, where I guess there were senators or something who came by to, to check on the project to go into the moon. Um, and uh, they were leaving um, the holes of NASA and they passed someone sweeping the floors and they passed and said, what's your name? What, what, you know, what, what do you do here? How long have you been here? And he, he, he says, my job is to, you know, to, to put a man on the moon um, uh, or something along those lines. Right. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that's, the, that's the key piece of, of how it is that we build our schools, right? The person who's cleaning the floors, the person who is in the office, who is sending, uh, you know, notes of communication to parents, they're also in Chinook. And the more we can create a culture where a school is a place you want to be, you want to work 
uh, both as a child you want to be here and as an adult you want to be here. And it's a work environment where there's a culture that supports your development as a person and as a contributor to the Jewish community. Um, that's what that's what we should be striving for. 100%. Okay, so let's get back onto the trajectory. So you're in Israel learning and you said, Dad, I'm coming your way. I'm coming to education. What yeshiva were you in, by the way? I was in uh, Chappelle's. Um, oh, there wonderful. Was a, a small, okay, no. uh, it was actually a Chinook program. It was, it was fascinating. Uh, a group of, uh, they had like a group of, of people going into Chinook, particularly at the time, some funding. So some of the great names in Chinook today, uh, Leib Kellerman was there at the time. Sure. Uh, Jerome Kornbluth was there at the time. Wow. Some really great names, and I had the pleasure of knowing them then and uh, continuing relationships now. Great. Okay, so did you come back to Yeshiva University for college? or I didn't. I was actually in college beforehand at the University of Chicago. I, I majored in Jewish studies and had the opportunity to learn uh, then. Um, and uh, I went to Israel for a few years, came back. Uh, my father said to me at the time when I asked him where I should go for a master's in education, uh, he said, uh, you know, if I get an application, uh, if I get an application for a teaching position from someone who went to Columbia, NYU, uh, you know, one of these great Harvard, whatever, he says, I'll always interview them. But if I get an application from someone from Bank Street College for education, I always hire them. So wow. I said, great, I'll go to Bank Street. So I got my master's in learning disability education from Bank Street uh, and then continued on with a doctorate at NYU. And, and at the time, I had started my career already teaching First, at the Churchill School and Center in New York, which is a secular school for children with learning disabilities, really considered one of the, the best places, really a model. The, the Sheffield School in New York, for example, is modeled after it, um, uh, which, uh, which is really remarkable. And they had the opportunity to work in the Sinai programs for children with special needs in the Jewish community uh, for a few years. Worked in the Yeshiva Katana of Passaic, uh, running their special education program in the middle school, creating it, running it and uh, teaching both uh, general and Kodesh uh, in the program. And uh, then I, I, I started consulting and working at Yeshiva University uh, at, at that point and have been doing that um, ever since. Unbelievable. Wonderful. And what, what do you think makes Bank Street so remarkable? I, I'm not familiar. I mean, I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with why do you think their programs stood out to your father? Uh, I think it's to what, the point that you mentioned earlier, which I think we strive for at, at, at YU also in the work that I, I, I am doing, which is the bridge of research and practice. Respected individuals who are teaching there, uh, all of whom are amazing practitioners. The courses, the graduate courses are actually taught in their school for children. So you actually sit in the desks of the wow. children there in classrooms that are used on a regular basis wow. so that you actually kind of are in the environment of what, how do you create an environment for young children to learn? So it is a remarkable environment for adult learning also. Um, and you see a lot of those universal principles of learning and creating such an environment with people who are, who are great role models, again, top of their field in terms of understanding the research, uh, but also able to translate it into practice and people who have been practitioners in the field as teachers and, and leaders of schools. You're reminding me of like when you have a professional development, someone comes to your school to speak to the teachers about active participation and they're just standing in front the whole time lecturing, which is the exact opposite of, of what they're saying, makes everyone suspect their message. But when you're able to live what you preach, I think that uh, really changes the educational experience for everybody. So that's a great answer. Can I share you a quick anecdote of Please. the time there that like exemplifies that? So we had to, as a practicum for a course in teaching math, I had to do a final project and it was teaching a small lesson, a mini lesson. And, and I was given a topic teaching fractions. So part to whole relationship, I think it was at the time. So uh, I was told that we want you to teach two different lessons, um, a lesson where you can request any resources you want. 
And another one where you're going to have to teach with like very minimal resources. In fact, at the time, I think New York City public schools were overcrowded and they started using bathrooms, converted bathrooms into <laughs> classrooms. So literally they took us into the bathroom. I, obviously it wasn't a functional bathroom yeah. and they had us teaching in this. No and windows. they also had me teaching in a classroom. Yeah. So what I did with part of the whole relationship, I, I was thinking, what can I do? So I used lipstick from my wife and on the on the yeah. squares of the tiles in the bathroom, almost as if it was a manipulative. So, you know, and, and then it, obviously in the classroom itself, thinking about what resources one could use, all technology at the time, I mean, this is long before smart boards or anything else. So um, whatever technology or any materials that we could use, we obviously use them at the time as well. But that's the nature of like, like a derech halimut, like the way one thought and started with what did the children need the experience to be? How can I take any environment, no matter whether it is the most craziest environment of like a, a reconverted bathroom and be able to then change that into a learning environment yeah. where given the materials around us, we can inspire children and get them, um, you know, to learn what needs to be learned. Beautiful. And I love your can-do attitude, right? Someone might say, yeah, it's a bathroom. What do you want from me? I can just see that. And you could also look at it as how do I maximize the resources and the opportunities that do exist? And I think in education where, you know, one of the challenges is our lack of resources. That's really the mindset we have to come to it. Or I come to it with, how do I make the most of the resources available to me and maximize them? So I love that. That's a great example. So we're going to get into Madik, which is your wonderful and innovative Korea-related program. I'd like you to please just tell us in, in two sentences, we'll get into it more, but what Madik is and then how you came to it. How did it evolve from these experiences and positions you were in? Uh, Madik is a what's called a dynamic assessment, which means that instead of it assessing what I just taught you and being based in a specific curriculum, so did you learn the last unit or the last letter and vowel that I was able to teach or the last vocabulary words so that I can assess you retrospectively, did I learn, did you learn what I just taught you, um, which is typical in schools and appropriate, we should continue to do those type of mastery assessments. Of, uh, of to ensure that children learn every single um, individual isolated skill um, or rule of Kriya. Uh, what it does, in, as dynamic assessments do, is it is more predictive and holistic. So that what winds up happening is it integrates and it, it assesses this integration and synthesis of all of your reading skills in order to predict whether or not you are likely to be a good reader or not. It is an indicator of future reading, much like a thermometer doesn't actually measure health, but it indicates whether or not there's something health related that is going on medically for you. Wonderful. And we're going to, we're going to dig into how you did that. It's, you know, you do use it here in our school and I can tell you it's transformed our intervention and support for CREA. So we'll talk about that, but tell us, why did you pick this project? How did you get to it? You had that early experience with the gas attendant. Is that what led it? And what were the early kernels of this that have developed? So, yeah, so certainly that that was a seminal experience. It then, you know, whenever you are in a learning environment, if you keep your ears and you know open and, and and you keep your eyes open, you find good people in every educational environment, every environment. You can like kind of if if you're open to learning, you're going to find the right people to kind of connect yourself to. And I had the pleasure 
um, early on, again, at Bank Street to, to connect to people who were second language literacy specialists and really learn from them. And then when I showed up at NYU, there happened to be a visiting scholar who had studied at the University of Oregon and had connected to the original authors of what was called DIBBLES at the time, uh, stands for Dynamic Indicators of Basic Early Literacy Skills. The individuals were Roland Good and Ruth Kaminsky, um, who really were the original authors of that. Their company now, um, over the last several years, shifted to it's called the Cadence Learning, and their measures are called the Cadence Reading. But for the last 20 years, oh, I connected with them 20 years ago and, and started really you know, under, trying to understand how that this type of measurement, dynamic assessment, could be helpful in schools, not only related to reading, but nowadays there are dynamic assessments of mathematics, there's dynamic assessments of writing, there's um, different ways in which we might track behavior accordingly and, and, and the like. And this all was innovated at the University of Oregon, again, decades ago, long before um, I showed up on the scene at NYU with this visiting scholar who had been trained there. Um, so I learned um, this methodology and immediately both Roland Good and Ruth Kaminsky, these authors of this you know, assessment now, which is adopted by the entire New York City public school system, for example, and they have loads of people around the country. Um, they have Spanish version, French version. They embraced me as a partner to develop what would basically be the Hebrew version of it. And uh, it's essentially a funny story. They called Madik because Roland said to me that our, our measure is called Dibbles. It's an acronym. Your measure has to be an acronym, just like our French. Me- uh, there's a sp- French and Spanish. Idapel and is 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 is, uh, is is the is the measure. And Dells, I think, is the Spanish version. They have these acronyms, but the acronym spells something that if when you say it out, it describes the measure. But it and and the word itself has to sound like a word in the language, but can't be a real word. Very interesting. So after like four, five, six months, a uh, team of people that I was working with said, oh, maybe, let's figure this out. Mivchan dinami shel yicholot kriya, which is basically dynamic indicators of basic early literacy skills, is madik. So it sounds like a Hebrew word. It's not midayek, but it's close. Madik. And that's how it was named. And for the last 20 years, I've been engaged with um, Roland and Ruth uh, to guide and develop the protocols for the research to understand and build the, the highest levels of, of research rigor in development of the measures for monitoring their progress to ensure that they are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing in the field. Um, again, these are some of the best researchers in the world and the best developers of measures and it's really been a, a tremendous blessing to have their guidance and um, and support on the ground so that they have, you know, helped guide the development of the measures, helped look at the data to see how it is that the measure is performing and ensure that the measure is not just something, you know, we didn't just develop it in our basement, but it is at the highest levels of, of, of evidence for reliability, validity and psychometrics that you would expect for any other general studies measure that we might be, you know, buying, tracking uh, um, and uh, supporting and monitoring the progress of our students. There's so much to applaud in your work of bringing the best in the world to our Jewish students. I mean, that is such an inspiring and important thing to invest in, and and I'm so appreciative. So thank you for doing that. I wonder, linguistically speaking, are there anything that you learned about Hebrew that distinguishes it as a language and therefore the test had to be adapted accordingly? Yes, this was not just a translation. And in fact, um, Madik is a... it's not one test. It's a it's a suite of measures, just like um, Akkadian's reading is in a suite of measures. So they're um, all attached to what are called these basic early literacy skills, phonological awareness, what is generally called uh, alphabetic principle or orthographic principle, fluency of connected text, vocabulary, and comprehension. Um, so we needed to understand the linguistic structures of Hebrew 
differently than English in order to be able to develop the various measures. Uh, so uh, the, the, a couple of major ones that, that come to mind, but we just don't have the time to go into in detail, would be things like uh, in English, the the syllable structure is something called onset rhyme. So like a word like cat would uh, be broken up as at. That is the onset, at is the rhyme, and you can have word families, the at family, the it family, the 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 you know those kind of the it family and things like this and therefore you can have cat and you can say well start with b bat etc. I mean Hebrew the structure of a syllable um, close syllable at least is quite different. It is what's called body coda. So a word like dug fish uh, is not d ag which would be the onset rhyme but is da g that the consonant vowel stays together and that the body the consonant vowel then closes with a a coda, which is the final, the final consonant of close, a closed syllable. So, so hopefully we didn't lose, we didn't lose too many listeners in the last uh, 30 seconds, but I'm going to ask you this question on that. I mean, has there been any hashkafic insights that you would take from your steep study of the Hebrew language? Is there any meaning behind these rules? Where did they come from? Are they godly? Would you say, I know you're not in the rabbinics, but it's just fascinating for someone to have do such a deep dive in the linguistic underpinnings of our language. Well, I would say, of course, uh, right? We know the Rabboni Sholem endowed the, the, the human being uh, with different abilities than animals. Nefesh Chaya, which uh, Rashi tells us is Dea Vidibor, and Uncle says Ruch Mamalala. So, of course, these linguistic structures um, are already embedded in our minds and how we learn and how we grasp language broadly. And, and this is Lashon Kodesh. So how, uh, how could we not believe that these are not only divinely inspired, but, but very much uh, it's supposed to impact us spiritually as well? Beautiful. I wonder if there's someone who's developed uh, safer or, you know, if there's any actual lessons that have been fleshed out from these distinctions you know that that's for your next your next career when you retire you'll write a safer on why our language is structured the way it is and what the embedded messages are because i'm sure there are there are many many scholars over the years and many rishonim who have grammarian over you know time who have uh detailed plenty uh plenty of of lessons from from the grammar of, of the torah beautiful Okay, so there's two things I want to unpack. One is the, the use of data, which I know is very unique, and you're doing a great job with that. And the second thing is the teacher training that I know is also an essential essential component of your program. So let's start with the data. How do you use data? How do you collect data? And what has data been teaching you as you navigate this project? So the story for the project itself, the story, I'm certainly happy to, 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 to answer the question. I want to just contextualize it a bit. Um, some of my first research 20 plus years ago empirically showed that children who struggle with reading feel socially excluded from participation in the community and then wind up acting out in some way that they have a behavioral challenge. Now, that was something that people had talked about anecdotally. But we actually showed it empirically, um, and it continues to seem to bear out um, empirically. Particularly, boys seem to externalize the behavioral challenges uh, with aggression, microaggression, more serious aggression. Uh, girls tend to, again, these are trends, tend to internalize the uh, with anxiety and other internalized um, behavior challenges. But the, there is a pathway specifically that comes from feeling excluded 
And since our schools are so so based in literacy and texts play such a critical role in our schools, um, children who don't have access to that, who struggle with it, um, very much feel separate. And uh, that, that creates a concern. The end of third grade in English, and same thing for Hebrew, seems to be what we call a cliff, where if a child does not have grade level reading by the end of third grade, uh, their outcomes for academic behavior, social, emotional, and religious development wind up plummeting. That doesn't mean that one can't remediate or support children after the end of third grade, beginning of fourth grade. It just means that the the gap is so much greater at that point. The trajectory for those who are weaker versus stronger in reading is so great uh, that it becomes very challenging to overcome it. So the measure itself that we have, or the measures, um, are measures that go kindergarten through third grade to be able to create an understanding of that trajectory and ensure that we're monitoring students' progress throughout to support the, the, the school's ability to um, intervene and have all students learning um, and, and reading on grade level by the end of third grade, which is certainly our aspiration. The sad reality is that if you look at the entire system across the world of all the schools using this measure, and again, it's really, uh, I think, one of the only empirical measures of this type um, for second language Hebrew, it's the only uh, one of its type, we find that there's really only about 35 to 40% of children reading at or above grade level at the end of first, second, and third grade. During COVID, that dropped to closer to 12 to 18% of that first June of, uh, of, of, of the COVID years, and, and it has bounced back to about 35% or so. Um, there are some years a little bit uh, better than others, but it basically... That's, that's, that's international? You're talking about Hebrew, English, French, Spanish... Well. Swahili. English, for English, the numbers are different um, for, you know, depending on public school kids versus, you know, our kids versus, uh, you know, different socioeconomic status, et cetera. But in our community, for Madik data, Got it. Madik, you're talking Hebrew, about Madik. Got Kriya it. itself, um, it. you're talking about that sad reality that there is a good 65% of kids who are reading below grade level at the end of third grade, um, which doesn't really, is not a pretty story, right? It's not a pretty um, narrative to tell. So, um, what the data does, um, and you certainly can speak to this as, a, as a, a head of an institution that uses it, what the data does, and the measure is, is given three times a year to every student, right? So we're not going to be able to go into the details of, of exactly what the measure is, but the measure is given three times a year to students. And the, the outcomes of, that, of, of those assessments um, then allow us to understand, is a child at or above a benchmark, or are they below that benchmark? If they're below the benchmark, then we have additional measures between those three times a year. So be between the beginning and middle of the year, between the middle and the end of the year, that you can check in to see if interventions are working. Those progress monitoring measures, we call them. You can give them every week, every second week, every third week, depending on um, your institution. Those are only like one minute measures. The benchmark measures that we were just talking about three times a year are three minutes each. So we're not talking about a huge investment of time. Um, and again, it's like taking your temperature. So if the child is having challenge and you are monitoring progress and you see the progress improving enough that you see the child gaining enough in their reading skills uh, that they would likely hit the goal by the end of the year or likely hit the benchmark by the end of the year, then the interventions are going great and you can continue going. And if not, then the data informs saying, well, maybe we need to change something. Maybe we need to change the intervention. Maybe we need to change and make it from a small group to a one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe we need to change the makeup of the group. Maybe we need to change the intervention um, to, to be more frequent. Any host of interventional changes that could be had and the data inform that. So schools get together around this very robust set of data around the class, around the individual children, 
to be able to make instructional decisions for the whole class, as well as interventional decisions for those who need it. And I believe you collect data from all the schools that are participating and then use that as a reference point as well. Is that correct? Right. So that data is what I'm referring to. I can see worldwide. I can see just for North America. I can see for schools of this type versus that type, larger schools, smaller schools. I can behind the scenes see how the community is doing overall. And because it's not connected to a specific curriculum, but is assessing the skill of reading, it's an outcome measure of reading. We have, you know, very, I think, I think very useful information for the community. And if I could just ask quickly, how many years have you been collecting that data for? In uh, many of the grades, it's been more than 15 years already. Wow. Um, and and um, for some of the newer measures, it's been closer to five to 10 years. Uh, we are regularly piloting new measures. Right now, we have a number of measures in pilot form in some schools, and we'll likely release more measures over the course of the next several years that will allow us, we're going earlier in years, um, and also later. So we're developing more kindergarten pre-letter naming even uh, measures that are looking at phonological awareness and using that to predict later reading so you can really intervene early. And we're also developing later measures for reading additional texts already in middle school so that even though that runway that we said ends at third grade where we really want everybody to be reading at or above grade level, there's still a need to monitor students' ability uh, with texts as it continues to develop. So some of the schools that have been using, let's say, your program for 10 years, right, like an average sort of number, are you seeing that they're improving their, their, their stats over that time or they're still at the 35%? So there are schools that are significantly higher than the 35% because they're, and, and that has as much to using the measure in terms, there's, there's using the measure and giving it, then there's the using the data to inform decision-making. And that decision-making also sometimes comes with professional development, not just from me and my team, but, you know, there are many experts around the country, around the world, internally in schools and sometimes externally who support, uh, um, support the, the, the professional development of the, of the faculty um, in Korea. So we have seen institutions that are focused on the, um, on the student development uh, make significant strides, now being able to focus on the data informing their instructional practices. And there are other institutions that continue to, to struggle in different ways. Um, and there are many institutions that don't use the data at all, and they, they have their approach to how they're right. monitoring student progress. I guess that would be a very powerful and compelling presentation if you could prove or show, like, Schools that embrace this process robustly have improved their overall CREA from X to Y versus schools that didn't. And that's like a very compelling argument why we should all invest time, energy, and, and resources to this. Again, I want to be clear that the MADIC is, a, is an assessment tool. Um, it's not itself an intervention. Right. So there, there are curricular materials that my team has developed. Uh, we're in the, actually in the process of piloting uh, an entire kindergarten and first grade curriculum that has been invested in by a foundation in order to be able to try to correct this problem of the, we'll call it the 35% problem. Um, and uh, we're seeing significant results based on that, where there's better outcomes. But I would, um, I, I agree with you. I, I think that there's compelling argument to say, first, there, there should be more schools that are collecting empirical data. It's not enough to see progress. You have to see that you're making enough progress among students. Secondly, you need to make sure that you are, in fact, meeting a benchmark. You know, every school will have their kid at 100, you know, the 99th percentile. But is that child who's reading at the 99th percentile in your school uh, necessarily uh, reading at the grade level they need to objectively for what a second, third grader should be reading. And likewise, 
every school will have a 10th percentile. Uh, and uh, But is that child necessarily reading below? Does that child need remediation? Um, right. It's not just relative to the curriculum. It's not just relative to the other children in your school. In, in English reading, for, for example, we would never accept just such a comparison. We would expect to have some objective measure of reading skill. How many children are inputted, let's say in, let's say in first grade, take a, how many children's scores are you looking at worldwide? Thousands. Thousands? Thousands. Yeah, so that's real data. Wonderful. And, and just uh, if you could briefly talk about the training that you do, because I know, you know our school experience, and I think that's a very important component of any program. Uh, what kind of training and support do you give schools who use your sure. system? Sure. So um, the, we, we try to set the threshold pretty low um, in terms of the assessment tool, right? So uh, you don't have to buy a whole program. Uh, while it is that we certainly can provide help with regard, um, with regard to interventions and guidance in reading the data and interventions based on the data and ongoing teacher development and the like, we separate that out. And um, most schools have their expertise locally or they get their expertise elsewhere for professional development. We focus our initial um, uh, connection with the school just on the training on the measure and that we've isolated down to one day. Uh, we're able to go over an overview of the purpose of the measure as well as train the faculty that will be giving the measure, uh, uh, the various measures that they'd be giving all within one day. And then schools are able to, because it's a fairly straightforward measure uh, to implement once you learn the rules, the schools are able to continue to do it on their own Frankly, check in periodically, sometimes with a question here or there, and we support that. But most schools are flying at that point, being able to continue to do it on their own. And as long as a school has someone in the school who has been trained by us, they continue to do the work independently without our involvement. We can we maintain the database of, you know, it's an online database uh, for the scores. So schools input that. We see the back end of it, but the schools are able to get the reports immediately um, upon entering the data so that, again, they don't have to interact with us. They don't have to wait for us to generate reports. The reports are immediate, the, the, the outcome reports are immediately generated upon entering data. So again, schools that are interested in MADIC are able to get one day of training um, and then they are able to uh, implement on their own. And if they would like to continue to engage us for further professional development, they may. You said something at the training, at our training at our school that was so eye-opening. And I think I'd like to, sh I'd like you to share it with with our listeners because i think it's a a well-known uh practice that needs to be addressed you talked about not using nonsense words as kriya practice uh, you have these books that will have made up words with different letter combinations and sound combinations you um, encourage us not to use those books as a way to practice but rather to use real text that the children were actually engage in can you just talk about that and elaborate why that's the case Sure, it goes back to the basic early literacy skills that, you know, phonological awareness and, uh, and, and understanding the sound symbol correspondence, oftentimes called, you know, the orth orthographic principle, is deeply connected to vocabulary. So something called orthographic mapping, for example, which is how the brain visualizes the language and connects sound to symbol at the, uh, at the, the, the word level, it could be prefixed and suffix level as well, is something that is connected to vocabulary. So being our, our children do enter school with some oral language. You know, they know words like Shabbos and Kiddush and they know, you know, uh, Torah and, and they know, you know, uh, words of the Chagim and things like this. So they're probably each kid comes in, even if they're not coming from a, uh, they're not coming from a, 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 langu a spoken language perspective, they're coming from a different perspective. They are still, they're still gaining a lot of vocabulary. So that vocabulary can be utilized in the practice of reading syllables. 
right? So the ability to be able to learn, you know, read consonant and vowels together doesn't have to be entirely um, devoid of meaning. Sha can be for, you know, Shabbos. And, uh, and Sha can be for Shalom. And She can be for Shemesh. And you can therefore have it be that it's connected both to vocabulary and meaning, um, but also that helps support the further development as you get to word level fluency um, in the brain. To do it entirely devoid makes it in, uh, just a visual exercise as opposed to a language exercise. Um, and since reading is a language process, it's important to connect all of the various basic early literacy skills, and, and that includes the vocabulary comprehension piece. Wonderful. I thought that was so insightful and it really pulls together a lot of the chachma, a lot of the underpinnings of what's going on when a child is learning how to read and the multiple skills and brain, you know, brain functions that are needed. Well, one of the pieces that comes up, an example I think I probably shared with you as well, is a lot of people spend a lot of time with visual discrimination with, let's say, shins and sins and full pages of kids naming them or coloring the ones that say shh or whatever. And I shared at the time that's also embedded in vocabulary, right? There aren't a lot of kids who are going around saying Sema Yisrael. And it just indicates, and again, there are many other um, examples one can give, uh, that when a child has the vocabulary and is appreciating the sounds of the language connected to that vocabulary, they're going to be much more a successful skilled reader. Okay, very good. Excellent. So as we uh, sort of close up, I wanted to just ask you if you've learned, in addition to the to the Madik program, you know, I know you offer a lot of other support services to schools. And what are you finding as the key elements of success for schools, broadly speaking, either with Madik as best practices to support that, or just in general, where do you feel schools really should be focusing on their improvement? And where do you see the biggest bang for your buck in terms of that investment for schools? Yeah, thank you for asking. I, again, uh, the focus of the work that that me and, 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 and my, my team of consultants that, that I work with um, has been on leadership, on strategy, on uh, leadership searches, on searches for, and also on excellence. And we really see the interconnectedness there, providing leadership coaching and ongoing support to make sure that the person who is leading the institution has um, the best skills for convening a team for um, working through difficult, challenging situations, uh, for inter uh, interacting with the community and parent body and the various stakeholders, um, and uh, really is able to inspire, you know, next in the school is, is critical. And being able to partner with lay leaders um, and the community in many institutions uh, so that the relationship, everyone's rowing in the same direction, if you will. And that really is also connected to strategy, where if you do not have a strategy of what the focus will be for the next three to five years and invest in that strategy in that direction. So you say, we need to work on CREA. Well, if that's in a vacuum and the investment is going to be just in the assessment, but not in supporting the teachers to be able to advance the literacy as you see what the results are, because you have an overall investment of finances around issues of educational excellence as manifest in CREA and maybe other areas also. So then you're not going to advance the school. So if strategy is not clear, then you're going to have some people pushing in this direction, some in that direction, some teachers concerned, parents concerned, and you're just going to be a weather vane. Um, and again, um, I think that that's where the interconnectedness between leadership, strategy, and educational excellence, especially for an educational institution, um, is absolutely critical. We are in the business of advancing student learning. 
how can we not focus on student learning as part of our strategy? The answer is that might be an area where we are absolutely investing, but we also have to invest in leadership. And we also have to invest in other areas of work in our school communications, community relations, advancing build, a building project or whatever. That's not an, against educational excellence, but one needs to make sure that we are solidifying educational excellence while also going after a strategy to advance the institution organization overall. Wonderful. And I'm so happy you're out there leading the way to help our schools. Is there anything else that you want to mention about your program or the work you do that you think we didn't cover? I just want to take the opportunity to thank you. You know, many leaders uh, have taken a step forward to advance the field by focusing as a leader ahead of school um, and focusing internally on advancing their own school, like we just said. Our interactions have been more global, We've had many conversations that have been at the national level. And I thank you for creating this podcast and really creating a forum for advancing innovative ideas and advancing the field uh, by not only looking inward, but looking outward to see how we can advance everyone together collectively. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And you really hit the nail on the head. That is my intention because there are so many amazing, wonderful things going on, and you're a good example of that. How could people find out more about your program or be in touch with you if they have any questions or interest? Sure, they can go on um, scottgoldbergconsulting.com is the broader uh, website. Uh, Madik, M-A-D-Y-K.org is the reading assessment website. Or they can email me at uh, scott at scottgoldbergconsulting.com. Great, and we'll put that in the notes, of course. And the last question... I always like to ask my guests if we could dream, if we could, an aspirational thought. Someone calls you up after hearing this interview and says, Scott, I'd like to give you a million dollars to advance the cause of Chinuch in America. I know a million dollars today isn't what it used to be, but, you know, a million dollars is a nice number. How would you spend it? Great question. I would say first, there is so much money in the Jewish community and there should be more investment in Jewish schools. There should be more investment in making sure that someone doesn't have to make the choice of going into Chinuch or not going into Chinuch because of Parnassah. And uh, we should we should certainly invest in the people. Um, at the same time, you know, as you said, a million dollars is not going to solve that problem. I would certainly say that one of the areas that you mentioned on earlier, which I'm very proud of, is bringing innovation to the Jewish educational space, especially around research and bringing research to practice. And I think that too often uh, we, we limit the research done and we run after the latest fad in Jewish education. And therefore, if someone has an idea, we run after it. And then in a couple of years, we run off the next one. Um, and uh, I would hope that what we would be able to do is not only have one study, but do what the general education and psychological research does, which is replications that really show us if, if chinuch is that important, then we need to know we're getting it right. Um, and therefore, being able to invest in research, to be able to say there are people who know how to understand what's going on in our buildings, what are going on with our students, what are going on with our families and the influences on our children. Let's not just guess. Let's have a better understanding of it and an ongoing understanding of it so that we can really make an impact and know we're making an impact. You got my million. That is a wonderful answer. It's a chiddish. Haven't heard that answer before, and I think it's right on. So thank you. Okay, thank you so much for joining us, and it's uh, great spending time with you and hearing about your amazing program, and Hashem should give you the insight to continue building and developing programs to better our community. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. Be well. All the best. So I will tell you what I did immediately after finishing my interview with Dr. Goldberg. As a school that uses his amazing program, I ran immediately to the supervisor of it, and I said, how are we doing 
What are we doing about this? How is this data being used to improve our school? And let me tell you, we've been using his program for two years or a year and a half at this point. We're about to do our second assessment of this year, and it is truly amazing. We have identified students. It measures different components of reading, both accuracy and speed. We've made different subgroups based on that feedback. We've up the number of CREA people who come. So we've just hired two additional CREA support personnel who come in and we have individualized CREA groups for every child in first through fourth grade and of course kindergarten as well. And so thanks to Dr. Goldberg and his program in real life, I could testify that our school and many others, I am sure, are benefiting from it. And as I mentioned in my introduction, what I love so much about Dr. Goldberg is how he went to the best language evaluators out there that he was lucky enough to interact with and meet and have a relationship and is using their wisdom for our students and our Kriya. And what a Kiddush Hashem that is, ultimately to take the Chachmas Hagayim the way it is and to say, how can we leverage this to be Marbek Fochemayim and connect Yiddish children to their heritage, to learning, and in this case, to their Kriya. So thank you for joining us on this, another edition of Chinuch Today podcast. Um, of course, I have to end with the request to give me five stars and to share it. I really don't know so much how to get the word out, but I do appreciate my listenership. Um, happy to share with those who are interested. I know I have a bit of a niche uh, topics here that are very much school focused, but that's what I am. So that's what I'm sharing. This is your Achmiel Garfield wishing you all a wonderful day.